0: Mean Pug Digital doesn't sound like the name of your typical legal marketing agency, right? Well, that's because they aren't. They're in the business of growing law firms. Mean Pug's founders have helped the largest personal injury law firms double in size. So when you partner with them, you aren't getting another agency that thinks law is boring, but it pays the bills, or worse, that knows nothing about the law, but thinks that they can fake it until they make it. You're getting a team who thinks that law and innovation can go hand in hand, but who also knows where the fine line is between creative genius and getting in trouble with the Bar Association. Mean Pug understands the guts of your firm and can help you solve problems like, what do I do when my call center can't keep up after we launched our new ad campaign? Uh, or how do I get more referrals from other lawyers? Or which case types are the most effective for my firm? With services in SEO, branding, web development, advertising, and more, they have a 360 degree view of your firm and know how everything connects and supports each other few agencies can offer you that kind of insight which makes partnering with mean pug a no-brainer for plaintiffs firms find out how they can help your firm by visiting
1: meanpug.com today people go to the office now with a different mindset they go to check in and check out they do their work they go home i used to stick around for happy hours i used to get lunch with people all the time nowadays people go in the office like ah oh, i'm here i got i got this commute let me just, I want to get out of here as quick as I can. So we, we're not going to go back. Even if you're in the office, you're not really going to go back to that culture. In other words, whether you're going remote or not, you've got to adopt a mentality that puts structured team building approaches front and center, or you're going to lose your culture altogether.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Answering Legal's Everything Except the Law podcast. I am your host, Nick Worker. If this is your first time tuning in, this is the podcast where we share expert advice on all the parts of running a law firm that attorneys weren't exactly trained for back in law school. Now, it's no secret that in order to succeed in the high-pressure world of law, you need a great team of people around you. However, building a reliable legal team is far from an easy task. So fortunately, our guest today has created a roadmap for attorneys to follow in his new book, All Rise, Practical Tools for Building High-Performance Legal Teams. We're gonna be taking a closer look at that book today as author Benjamin Sachs is here with me now. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks for
1: having me, Nick. great to be here.
0: Uh, Can you introduce yourself uh, a little bit to our audience and and tell us um, about your experience over the years, teaching and advising
1: lawyers? Sure, sure. So uh, my career has been a bit windy. I mean, I started, when I graduated law school, I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer and I went right to Sidley Austin and I started in litigation. And quickly realized that there aren't many trial lawyers anymore. I mean, there are, especially in prosecutor's offices and defense attorneys, but at the corporate world, it's, it's a lot less common. People settle. So I started looking for other areas where I enjoyed those skills and put them in other places. And it may sound crazy, but I found business consultants do similar work in a completely different universe. They are problem solvers the same way trial lawyers are. They work in teams and all this stuff. So I went to BCG, Boston Consulting Group, and that really got me thinking about teams differently. I mean, ultimately I stayed on the business side, I went to a tech company, I was general counsel there, but ultimately there was chief operating officer overseeing everything, strategy, marketing, uh, engineers, product managers, a lot, not the whole business, but it just so much of the business that it gave me a, a chance to see every aspect of how you build great teams. And throughout that time, all I could think was, God, if I'd known this stuff back when I was at Sidley, you know, and so many attorneys tell me that, if I just knew what I knew outside the law firm, if I could take it back to the law firm, the world would have been a different place. So that's ultimately what led me here to write this book.
0: I always love hearing people's experience and how it changes their perspective because you know, you go to school, you learn one thing and then you think that that's going to be your practical application in your in your career, but it's it's often not the case. Like there's a ton of things I learned in school that I don't necessarily use in my everyday life. There's a ton of things I I learned just by being in the weeds that, that uh, are much more valuable to me than,
1: than what I paid for in education. And it's never predictable, right? Like you can't, if you if you knew in law school, these are the courses that are gonna matter and these are the ones that don't, you might take things differently, but I'll tell you what, there's no course on an, almost any law school on management. And it's something you see a lot in business schools and other contexts, but very few law schools. So really tells you there's a big gap there, it's something that most people expect you to learn on the job, which is, to me, is unfair. I mean, it's so it's such a hard, it's a completely different job than just the day-to-day legal work, so uh, I'm glad to have the chance to talk about this topic.
0: I am glad too, um, because, like you mentioned, there's there, I took a, a, a course in management, but it's it's not experiential, right? And uh, and so I want to focus on your book today, All Rise. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, more like the why you decided to write the book? What was your inspiration for for telling this story?
1: Yeah, I mean. To me, a lot of law lawyers graduate law school, they're excited to jump into practice and they think their practice is gonna be built on either their brilliant legal work or their ability to build client relationships. And those two things are really important. I mean, you cannot have a great legal career without those two things. But to have a leverage, which in the law firm world, especially, or in any larger legal organization, whether that's a general counsel team or something else, If you're working in a legal team, the number one area to actually drive efficiency and profitability is in a team, right? You can't be a lone wolf lawyer. Very rare to be successful that way. And so that is such a hugely overlooked area of building our legal career. In fact, the lawyers who are the best are the ones who build strong teams because they can leverage that team to do a lot more work. They're more efficient that way, more effective, and they don't just build cases. They build careers. That is so powerful. And it's also exciting, like it's a much more fun place to work when I love my team, when my team loves me, we love working together. So having a real roadmap, a real concrete way to do that, for most lawyers, it's pretty daunting. I mean, they don't know the steps for that. Uh, It's not something they can just Google and apply. And when they do Google it, and frankly, some people say, oh, I, I read a management book, but it doesn't seem to apply to my work as a lawyer. So part of the impetus of this book was saying, look, there are a lot of leadership books out there, a lot of management books out there, but for some reason, they're not connecting with lawyers. Let's try to take these core principles and show how lawyers can use them every day, make it concrete. And that's my thing, like how do you make this really concrete? If you can do that effectively, you can completely change how people uh, focus on their priorities and their careers.
0: So I'm curious because I think one of the things that people are hesitant um, when they're building a team to sort of seek out is, is they don't necessarily know what traits, um, that the highest performing teams have in common. And, and so they're sort of like, am I going to shoot in the dark or am I just not going to do it at all? So based on what you've seen over the years, what, what are those traits? What traits of the highest performing teams, um, do you see most often?
1: It's such a good question because what the question is really asking is how do I have a systematic approach to this instead of just throwing out different ideas, right? Sure. And that's where lawyers often get stuck. They don't think this is rigorous. I think this is fluffy, wimpy stuff. And so they just kind of move on. It, the, the structured approach that I use when I'm teaching uh, how to build a great teams is to focus on these four traits, trust, ownership, productive conflict, and accountability. If you've got a team with those four traits, you've got a really strong team. And I list them in that order for a reason, because they build on each other. So if I have trust, trust means the ability to know that I can say, hey, I, I need help or I made a mistake, have that vulnerability with your team and not have someone judge you for it. If I have that trust, then I'm willing to step outside of my silo and step outside of my self-protection and actually try to help the team and own something on the team. And if I had that ownership, then I like what I'm doing and I care about the work enough where I want to engage others and have that conflict, that productive conflict. And if I'm willing to have productive conflict, then I'm willing to hold others accountable. So a lot of lawyers, they talk, well, I've got this problem on my team, no one's giving each other feedback. Well, the problem isn't feedback, the problem is actually trust. So knowing that you can drill back down through these traits and find the root problem and then build back up, that's why the structure is so important. Because if you don't have that, then whenever something goes wrong, you're once again going back to basics, trying to figure out, well, what do I do, how do I solve this problem? If you have a rigorous framework, you can use that to guide your CLEs, your trainings, your internal uh, policies, all that can come back to this and give everyone that like backbone and that, that language they need to build that common framework for running teams. I love
0: those four things because I'm a big proponent of teaching employees how to carry themselves in the workplace. Um, Because if they don't know how the culture works and how they can talk to people or or how they can approach a problem, how can they ever hope to get anything solved? And if you're in your own silo, you can't really accomplish much outside of what's immediately in front of you. I'll
1: give you Um, a really specific example. I was on a call just earlier today with um, the partners of a major law firm in a practice group. I won't say the client name, but that was meeting with the partners and we were talking about communication. And they were in this debate internally among the partners about what the associates are expected to do when answering an email on the weekend. And they they couldn't decide, is it you answer within an hour or 24 hours, or you don't have to answer unless it has a deadline. Are partners supposed to put a deadline for responding? They went back and forth. Well, I said to them, look, you all can't even agree on this. Imagine how an associate feels joining this group trying to figure, I got an email on a Saturday. Is this now my whole life? Is I got an email on a Saturday? I respond within 10 minutes. Can I wait a few hours? I mean, they have to figure this out a little bit at a time. So imagine if we just document, hey, this is our approach. And you can vary it a little bit from partner to partner. But if you document, if you just document something as simple as how do we answer weekend emails, imagine how much faster your team can get to work and get through all that kind of BS, that layer of stuff you have to deal with just to get to work. Um, so I, I love this this conversation because it's all about that. Like, how do we make it easier for associates to be productive? So
0: the first tenet I, I hear is trust, but I, I also feel it sounds um, as if we want trust and we want honesty from uh, our communication, um, because if you try to sugarcoat or you bury things or you won't get to the root of the problem. So I know that you state in your book, it's super important for law firms to create an environment where the employees can be honest and vulnerable. So can you, can you sort of cut through
1: that and tell us why that's so important? Yeah, I mean, I, I go back to the data. You know, this isn't just, hey, it sounds fluffy and cool. You know, this isn't like that. This is data-driven team productivity. So for example, Google did a major study of its teams. And I'm talking product teams. So these are teams that actually churn out the software you see every day from Google. And they studied which teams were most effective. And they expected to find things like, you know, if you correlate like GPAs and university pedigree and years of experience and maybe even personality traits, you'll find this perfect cocktail of a great team. And they correlated all of this with actual effectiveness. So the team actually hitting its goals over the the years. It turned out none of those things I listed mattered. The number one thing that predicted the best teams were whether that team had psychological safety, meaning the ability to be vulnerable and trust, psychologically trust, that others won't judge me for it. So teams that felt they could do that were the teams that said, hey, here's a better idea. I've got some feedback. I need help. I made a mistake. All those things require a little bit of vulnerability. And in a legal team, you need that same stuff, right? If the if a person doesn't know what to do, which is gonna happen like every day if you're a junior associate, right? But even as you get more senior, ooh, how do I deal with this tricky client situation? Or it can be management conversations. Hey team, I'm not sure how best to work with you to make sure that our weekend work is sustainable, right? We have to do it a little bit, but how do we work together on this? Like that takes vulnerability from a manager to admit that they're not a perfect manager. At every stage in your career, you need to instill and have that psychological safety and have that trust. If you have it, then you're not just relying on your own intuitions to get better. The whole team will start weighing in and helping you get better. You can leverage the whole team truly to improve in your career. So without that trust, you just go back to self-preservation, self self self-protection. So the classic line is, it's about micromanagement. Micromanaged teams focus on avoiding errors. Highly productive teams focus on hitting goals. There's a lot of difference there right? So if all like, if I don't have the trust to make mistakes, all I think is what does a boss want to see? How do I just stay in my lane, do what I'm told to do and get it right? I don't think what's the best thing for this client? What's the best thing for this team? You need trust to unlock all that extra layer of productivity.
0: So are employees sort of, um, I want to say like on a base level, are they fearful of like retribution or losing their job? Um, and then, So how can we sort of like circumvent that to get to a place where like job security uh, feels like, I don't know. Do employees need to feel like their job is secure in order to get to this level of of trust that we need and how do we teach or how do we sort of let employees know that their jobs are
1: secure, right? Then they're not just avoiding errors. Yeah. And I think for a lot of associates, They may not be worried about losing their job if I make this mistake, but they're worried about looking dumb and looking stupid is a real problem. I mean, if I'm a junior associate or a mid-level associate doing something that's a little outside of my comfort zone, I wanna impress and I wanna get it right. So one of the things I might do is I might spend a whole lot of time researching and preparing and doing, let's say a, a litigation brief. I will spend a ton of time on this brief, make sure it's perfect before I show anything to the more senior associate to look at, okay? So it's not that I'm worried about losing my job, I just wanna impress, right? And that sounds really reasonable. Like, of course you spend a lot of time, it's an important brief and you wanna get it right. I would prefer my teams do things a little differently. And it's outside their comfort zone, I don't want them to spend 15 hours writing 10 pages that are perfect. I'd rather them spend two hours giving me an outline of this new area so that I can collaborate with them and see their thought process and then go one step at a time. And I might actually, if I don't know them that well, and I don't know their writing style, rather than having them write a whole lot, I might say, hey, can you write one page? Let's make sure the tone is right for this context. Cause I have to sync your work with other work for other people contributing to this brief or whatever it is. So I'm breaking it down a little bit and I'm trying to encourage them to come to me with things that are a little bit less finished. Cause a lot of lawyers, they're terrified to show something it's not perfect. I would say, no, look, I want you to show me your thought process. I want to be part of that process. That is a, an example of encouraging psychological safety and trust by showing it doesn't have to be perfect. We're going to work on this together. I'm here to help you improve. So mistakes are part of that learning process and something I anticipate, and I'm here to help you catch them early so you can get better faster. That makes sense.
0: I, it, do, it makes a lot of sense, but it's also um, it's it, it sounds outside of the norm of what you would expect in a law firm. So I'm a bit surprised to hear that because it it goes back to like the billable hour model, right? Like I want to work as much time as possible on this brief to impress this person. I have to do it myself. Um, And and I I want to bring this up because on a recent episode of this podcast, we had a managing partner at a very, a really large, very successful law firm come on and talk about how her practice has always emphasized putting the success of the firm first Mm -hmm. um, instead of individual interests like what we're talking about. Um, I know you're also a big believer in this and 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 having law firm team members put goals ahead of their personal goals, firm goals ahead. Uh, so I want to know if you have any tips for leaders, because I know it's like, you know, collaboration sort of helps them feel more secure um, and, and more vulnerable. But how can we get empl- employees and associates to really buy into having this team first mindset as opposed to furthering their own interests.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is is recognizing these two things don't have to be in conflict. So when we say, or or when I talk about ownership, I say the definition to me of ownership is that I'm willing to put the team's interests ahead of my own personal interests. It's not necessarily the expense of my personal interests. It's just recognizing that hopefully they're aligned, right? If I want to do well in my career, then that means doing well for the client, for example. But it also means that this isn't just about um, avoiding the partner's wrath. So if a partner is a micromanager, if the partner um, really focuses on, hey, this period is italicized and this one isn't, now, I'm not saying we don't want to catch errors. We do want to catch errors, but if if the way that you approach your management is to always be focusing on that and on this idiosyncratic version of legal work, as opposed to helping someone realize that look, there are lots of ways to do something. Here's why I think the direction you're going isn't as successful. Here's a way I think could be better in talking it out. If you take a collaborative approach, okay, less idiosyncratic, more collaborative, more talking about the why behind my feedback on your brief or on your deal papers, whatever it is. If I take that collaborative approach, I'm going to encourage people to think about the whatever the best way is, the true best way, not the way that gets them to avoid me yelling at them or me setting back a bunch of red lines, right? So it becomes less about the, the ego of the partner or the senior associate that you're trying to satisfy and more about the true client's interests. So that to me is ownership in the making. That's half of it anyway. There's a whole nother half of it which is the willingness to own problems that you didn't necessarily create. And that's a really hard one, I think, for folks to recognize. So the, the way I, I talk about this one is saying, look, there are things that are going wrong on your team uh, sometimes. Maybe it's something that's subtle, like, oh, the way we're running our meetings isn't great. You know, they're, they're, they're veering off the agenda or we don't even have an agenda. Or it could be something more significant, like I think the strategic direction for the client is wrong. Are you going to stay in your lane, and say, look, I keep my head down, Running meetings isn't my job. Uh, deciding client strategy is not my job. If you keep taking that uh, head in the sand mentality, then you're not really owning the client, right? You're not really owning the case. So how do you break people out of that mentality? That's the next step. That's really important.
0: I, that was actually going to be my follow-up question is because um, when you make a problem sort of, or, or when you isolate a problem down to a certain person's contribution, then it doesn't it doesn't lend itself to the team first mentality. So how do you get to, or, or how do you, when you when you catch an error, right? Like a whole, I don't know, a, a big one. Call it a big error, right? Like uh, the direction or or the strategy for a certain client is is just not going to work out, and you need to change direction. Um, but the person whose idea or or the inception of the idea belonged to one person on the team. How do you how do you sort of make it so that the team owns the error and not just the one person? Um, so that you can sort of cut through that, that like, uh, that, that egocentric mentality.
1: Yeah. I and mean, there's so many ways to slice this one. I mean, it, you know, true errors, I would hope most lawyers would feel a, a, an ethical obligation if they feel like it's a real error. But I think what you're really getting at is the the grayer stuff. Like, I think the strategy is just not a great one. I think we can do better. Those conversations. Yeah. Those conversations are hard to encourage. The way i would talk about it is to say hey folks if i'm a manager team let's talk about our strategy i'll try to encourage the team to talk about it and what i'm really trying to do in this example is shift the the mental model of saying that the manager's job is to have all the answers so if it's the manager's job to have all the strategic answers and the divine wisdom then uh if an associate has a different idea it must be wrong or less than my idea So instead what I try to encourage is like, look, I'll come into me and say, look, I've got an idea here. I think I've got the right attitude, but I want to talk it out. Let's make sure everyone has questions or other ideas, something I'm missing. And if I phrase it as, Hey, there's something I may be missing. There's some nuances that you're all in the weeds. Maybe, maybe you have some ideas here. And I encourage that conversation. I'm once I'm I'm showing vulnerability, right? I'm saying I'm not perfect. And even if most of the time they're deferential because they're still more junior to me and I'm the boss. Uh, it'll slowly encourage this this different way of looking at it and say okay well i can collaborate and i do the same thing with associates across work I say look have you all read the rest of the brief produced by so-and-so associate have you read your peers work have you provided any comments and they look around no i don't have time for that So, all right well look making time to review each other's work is really important if you're not reading the rest of the brief and seeing how your work syncs with theirs that's a mistake so it's not just i want you to do it it's i expect you to do it it's actually talking about those expectations loudly and, and often, so people understand Like that's what good lawyering looks like to me. We will be right back after this short
0: ad.
2: When a client calls, they're really looking for immediate service. Because we have Answering Legal, we're able to see every client message and we're able to contact our clients immediately. My name is Margot Gaines and I'm a partner at Gaines & Musico. We started using Answering Legal because we were unable to answer all of our phone calls. Answering Legal has allowed my firm to get hired on numerous clients that we never would have. We get messages throughout the night and on the weekends. Sometimes we're in court or we're dealing with other clients. And because of Answering Legal, my partner and I are able to address any client concerns or any new clients immediately and it's really increased our business. Answering legal has allowed us to service our clients in a way that their needs are met and their phone calls are answered, and we're able to spend more time doing the things that are necessary for our clients.
0: I think employers, right, law firms, businesses, are typically of the mindset that if there is conflict, we need to eliminate the conflict as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, um, just, I don't care what the conflict is, stop it, go figure it out. Um, but in your book, you say that having employees challenge each other's ideas, like what you're just talking about, um, and, and especially being, uh, aware of other people's ideas in the first place is extremely valuable. Yeah. So how can law firm leaders create that environment and, and sort of, um, like foster a conversation where productive conflict can exist and what can they do to ensure that that conflict doesn't turn unproductive.
1: Ooh, there's like uh, four chapters. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's, it's it's tough, right? I mean, I think that it, it, when it comes to trying to encourage conflict, one of the things is to recognize that a lot of people have conflicts for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes con- conflicts come from personality differences, for example. So really understanding the source of conflict. Is it because we have different working styles? Do we approach our work and communicate differently? I got to tell you, I think more than half of the conflicts, like genuine conflicts in the workplace. By conflict, I mean something that makes people frustrated. Not just like I disagree, oh, we talk about it and then we find a new way to do it. Like, that's not really a conflict, that's just a conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about real, you know, emotional, emotionally invested conflicts. Half the time they are personality driven. So one of the things I encourage teams to do is talk about personality differences. We actually will use a, any, I don't care which one, use any personality test you want, Myers-Briggs, Hogan, social uh, social styles, whatever you want, but actually talk about your differences. That's something I do on my teams to encourage just getting to know each other a little better. Um, But okay, let's say we go past that. We say, okay, fine, personality styles are great. But now we've like, we've really got this disagreement. How do we get through it? As a manager, it's really important that you are there as a part of that conversation, but encouraging two people to talk together. So I I had this happen in a meeting last week. I watched two partners get into a conflict about how they would approach a particular associate who's underperforming. I'm listening to the conversation and they're going back and forth, and you can tell they're getting a little tense. They starting to like actually attack each other a little bit. You can tell this there's, there's probably like 20 years of baggage like, going into this conversation. Um, and it's a small thing, but one of the things I did, I jump in and I say, Hey, I just want to say this is a great conversation. Really important that we recognize there are different ways of doing things. They're not one is not bad and good, but we need to try to find out what the best practice is in the situation. So, what I'm hearing is, and I kind of restate the conflict a little in more neutral terms without judgment. And then I can encourage them. Okay, so what, So given that, like, what do you all think? Like, which, which one do you think? So I'm not taking over, but I'm facilitating number one. And I'm adding some positive, it sounds kind of silly, but it's like positive energy on top of the negative frustration. Say, Oh, this is a good thing. You all are really engaged. How great to see that. It tends to get people to calm down a little bit. They kind of like step outside their shoes. They realize what's happening and they calm down and they re-engage productively. That's a small thing, but in the book, I've got a million things you can do. So in fact, I teach negotiations at UVA law school. I mean, a course on negotiation has so much to offer on conflict resolution. There are so many practical tactics in the book and in any negotiation book, frankly, about how you deal with conflicts that can make sure your teams stay on track.
0: I want to switch gears. I want to ask you because I think many law firms are beginning to get comfortable with having their employees work outside of the office. Um, Yeah,
1: some are are being pulled into it, scraping the chalkboard as they get down, but
0: yeah. Yeah. And there's the whole pros and cons list of, do you want the best employees or do you want the most available employees? And mm-hmm. and I'm sure we could have a, a, a cauldron of debate about that, but do you believe it's possible to maintain a high performance legal team with some or all of the employees working remotely?
1: The short answer is absolutely the longer answer, of course, because I'm a lawyer is it depends. Um, The reason I say yes is there are no shortage of fantastic examples of fully remote companies. They tend to be more in the tech sector. But even pre-COVID, Basecamp is a company that was well-known in tech. Um, They actually wrote a book called Remote, and the book predates COVID. And it's all about how do you build a remote-first company. And now, post-COVID, people are like, ooh, what about this remote thing? Well, it's been around for a while. The, The key is, and the reason I say it depends, is that a lot of law firms are not built- in a way that allows them to make this pivot easily. And I say built, I mean their entire culture is just a little off. uh, And 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 the the problem, the most common theme I see when people are trying to pivot to hybrid work or remote work is uh, that in the old days, when everyone was in the office, serendipitous interactions were the way things got done. Hey, I'm a little confused by that email. Well, I'll probably see the person walking through the hall Uh, I don't know what to do. I can tap an associate on the shoulder. Career advice, uh, over lunch or happy hour, talk to some partners. When you take away the serendipity of the office, then you realize how disorganized and chaotic all those systems were. And frankly, those systems advantage people who understand the hidden networks of law firms, which tend to be people who look like me, white guys. Like I tend to do pretty well in chaotic, ambiguous environments. I got confidence up my wazoo. I can go and talk to a partner, whatever. Not everyone feels comfortable doing that. So you take away that serendipity. Now what we see is remote work brings out an organization's lack of organization. So if you fix that problem, if you get more organized in how you run your teams, those same practices about in my book about running great teams, they apply whether you're remote or not. The difference is that if you are not remote, sorry, if you are remote, you really, really need those practices because you can't use Band-Aids like serendipity to fill the gaps. And increasingly the problem is even if you force people back to the office because you want that serendipity again, it's not happening. People go to the office now with a different mindset. They go to check in and check out. They do their work, they go home. I used to stick around for happy hours. I used to get lunch with people all the time. Nowadays, people go in the office like, ah, oh, I'm here, I got, I got this commute. Let me just, I want to get out of here as quick as I can. So we, we're not going to go back. Even if you're in the office, you're not really going to go back to that culture. In other words, whether you're going remote or not, you've got to adopt a mentality that puts structured team building approaches front and center, or you're going to lose your culture altogether.
0: I think that's the best, most thought provoking answer I've ever heard to uh, whether or not anybody believes that you should go remote because people will just say, yeah, you know, it's more efficient. It's this, it's that. But that takes into account the actual human aspect of of why we enjoyed working in the same place in the first place.
1: Yeah. Well, um, and Imagine if a major law firm said, OK, Ben, I, we can do it. Anybody. You said anybody can do it. We're going to do it tomorrow they will come crash into a halt. Mentorship is going to go away. Feedback is going to go, all these little things, teaching each other because they never were structured about it. So what I tell law firms: is be realistic. If you are not ready to invest in the training and the infrastructure and the accountability for great management and running great teams remotely, then you should probably not go remotely. Tomorrow you will crash. So associates will say, well, wait a minute, didn't the last like two years show that we're great remote? This is the most common objection I hear about going back to the office are like, well, we did so well, we had the best years ever in the pandemic. The economy was great, we did great, why do we need this? But unfortunately the reality is the reason a lot of associates did well is the law firm had years of momentum going into the pandemic. It's like the way that our team works, we know each other, we know the managers, the managers know the associates and so on. If everybody knows each other well, you get through it. But as turnover happens and you get more people in, now that culture doesn't have momentum to run on anymore, you need a more systematic approach. So whatever you're doing in the pandemic, like whoever you are, wherever you are, corporate law from wherever, if you got through the pandemic and thought everything was fine, don't expect, oh, I'll go back to the office a little bit it'll continue. You've still got to have a structured approach because that culture you love is going to fade around you with this new sort of post-COVID mindset. You've got to put in the work.
0: I I, I love the idea that like uh, there's momentum, but I think we got, so if this was so easy, right? If it was so easy to manage people remotely and, and create these environments, then as soon as the internet came out, everybody would have been working remote already. The telephone, obviously we can just call each other. I could work from home. You could call me up with a problem, um, but that's not necessarily how it works because you need management to structure these interactions in a way that's productive and yeah. not just siloed information.
1: Well, say, for example, how, one of the most common objections they get from, uh, Leaders, VPs, or partners, or whoever it is, CEOs. Well, how do I make sure people are actually working when they're remote? Which is such a funny question, right? Because it's like, how are you deciding whether someone does good work anyway? Like, what do I care how many hours you work? Now, at a law firm, you have billable hours. I don't mean hours don't matter. Of course, they matter. Mm-hmm. But if we're if we're worried, especially in like non-billable contexts, a corporate contexts, how do I make sure people are effective? If you give people an amount of work that you believe should get done in the amount of time. Why do I care when you did it exactly? In terms of late at night, early in the morning, you know. But if you're running your team in such a way that's so chaotic, you can't keep track of whether someone has a full load. If you're handing off requests willy nilly, what you end up finding is your highest performers you're burning out because you're giving them all the work, and your junior perform your not junior you're you're underperforming people. You're kind of laying off because you don't want to have to redo all their work. So you actually end up screwing yourself on both sides, right? Your low performers aren't getting a lot of practice, and your highest performers you're burning out. You're actually losing your highest people. So all of this sort of chaotic, like disorganized management is going to kill you in the post-COVID world, especially if you're hybrid. If you can't like see what people are working on, if you don't have knowledge of that, you're not keeping tabs on things productively. I mean, it is going to drive your team to the ground.
0: Yeah, all I'm hearing is uh, if you if you didn't have an effective way of measuring h- how effective people were before they worked remote, how are you gonna measure them when they have to work remote?
2: Yeah.
1: Now we could probably get a debate about billable hours and whether that's effective, but uh, I don't know if we have enough uh, hours or alcohol to have that conversation. Yeah, Uh, I don't have enough
0: patience, I'll I'll say that. Um, And I have not eaten yet today and uh, I'll get cranky. So (laughs) I do, so let's say lawyers listen to this podcast, they read your book, um, they decide they wanna take action in assembling a high-performance legal team. Do you have any tips for them when it comes to evaluating the current state of their team and identifying problem areas and, and rooms uh, rooms room for improvement?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, when I work with a new client, what I always do is start with an assessment, sort of diagnostic, got to figure out where the holes are. So I start with my four traits or the high performance teams, which by the way aren't like my traits. I didn't invent these traits. These are the same traits you'll find in a lot of leadership books or something like it. So once you pick, the framework that you think best fits your firm, whether it's mine or someone else's, up to you. Then you try to establish a diagnostic process for figuring out where you are. So I have a survey in my book, you can find this online, it's free, Uh, and you can use that survey with your team. And you use that survey to develop kind of a heat map of what's going well, what's not. You've got questions around each one of these traits about how people feel about trust and ownership and conflict and accountability. Um, I always pair that though with interviews. Because if you just do a survey, you get, uh, you know, it's like a little thin, like, where's the story? Where's the narrative behind that? And if you just talk to people and have interviews, you miss kind of the broader heat map of where things sit. So I always do both. A kind of one, two punch helps. Then I meet with the leadership and I say, all right, leadership, like, this is what I'm seeing. These are the themes where I see some gaps. And then we decide oh, what's our first seminar going to be? What's our first program going to be? And this is where I think a lot of lawyers struggle. You know, diagnosing is one thing. Okay, I think I think our problems are, you know, part A, C, and F, whatever it is. So if I've I've identified those priorities, now how do I actually go about addressing them? Um, they tend to want to go kind of scattershot with different trainings. Instead, I'd say, like, let's start by making sure we're all on the same page about what good looks like. Like, let's have an introductory fundamentals, get on the same page seminar program. So, look, these are our values, these are the key traits of high performance teams. And we'll zero in in that seminar on one or two areas where we want to talk. And in those trainings, I don't know if you want me to go into this now or not, so I'll give you a chance to stop me. But there are so many ways we could be having better trainings with our attorneys. So just because you've done some diagnostic work, just because you said, okay, we need training, that's not the end of the conversation. You can have a cookie cutter, boring training that has absolutely zero impact and costs a lot of money. It's a huge waste of time. and makes people want to say, well, screw this stuff. It's just not doesn't have anything in it for me. We've gotta change the way we do training if we wanna be more effective.
0: So how do we make our training more effective
1: then? Oh, good, you took the bait. Um, So uh, look, I I think my biggest pet peeve with trainings today, um, and it's it's like no one person's fault, it's a systemic failure, is that professional development experts within the law firm are used to trying to think about a CLE model for trainings. So how can I bring in somebody or have a partner or somebody internally run a training That's one or two hours. And they kind of lecture at them with content. And the worst thing is they tend to do in a cohort model. Oh, we need management training. Well, get the managers. Who are the managers? Uh, Fourth, fifth, and sixth years. We'll put them in a room. So imagine that, okay. You've got a a well-intentioned trainer coming in and giving a bunch of best practices to fourth, fifth, and sixth years across the entire firm. Well, some of them will be like, ah, it's interesting. Some of them will just multitask and ignore it. And they'll go back with no accountability to implement any of this stuff. So that's the cohort-based training model that rarely has any impact. The model that I use that I think is much more effective and others use this too, I think effectively, is a team-based training model. So you you don't think in a cohort of 30 years, you think in a team. Let me bring the practice group of the IP litigation team. Let me bring that team in. We'll do a diagnostic on that team. We'll identify the problems on that team, we'll construct a training just for that team. And in that training, the associates and the partners are all there. And in the training, we're gonna talk about, all right, how do we fix this problem? We've got a problem of communication uh, and it's killing us with sustainability while we're working long hours, we need to communicate more effectively. All right, what are three or four things we can do better in communication? And they walk out of the room with an agreement on which things they're actually going to do. And because it's team centric, the partners in the room, the junior associates in the room, there's no hiding from this. It's not, I'm throwing something at a wall and seeing if it sticks. We are committing to our action items. That is change management, not training. So that model is much, much, much more effective. So you team by team, you make it bespoke to that team, or at least adapt it to that team. You encourage them to engage and make sure the partners and associates in the room, it's a totally different ball game. Repeat that process every six months with an additional supplemental training. And we can take every problem and slowly evolve towards this sort of more, more perfect team. Um, it happens slowly. It doesn't have to cost more money, but it has to be much more thoughtful in how we do it.
0: So my fear at the end of, of this conversation is that listeners might think that, oh, this sounds, um, too big for me, right? I don't need this level of, of help creating this high performance team. You know, I'm, I'm too small for this. My firm is this, I'm only two partners and a few associates. Um, what would you say to the person who writes themselves off as maybe too small or, or unambitious to create a team in this way? And, and is it, is it worth the effort to them?
1: Yeah. Well, so take your extreme example of, of a small group, two partners, three associates, let's say that's the entire firm, small firm Mm -hmm. in that situation. Uh, The thing I'd ask the partners is, are you managing your team perfectly? Is this the most effective you can possibly be? And that's a rhetorical question, right? Of of course not. So that team, though, might have different priorities than a big law firm. So, for example, a small group like that, chances are they've probably been together a while, right? It's not like a big law firm. Their turnover probably isn't. They lose those three associates every three years, right? So if that's the case, then building trust might actually be something that they're pretty good about. They have good trust. They know each other pretty well. Okay. Okay. Well, how are you about accountability? How are you about communication? How are you in terms of project management and micromanagement? Uh, maybe that micromanagement's a real problem. So with that diagnostic, we go in, we figure out, okay, like there's a bit of a problem with micromanagement here. How do we uh, deal with that issue? Um, or there's a problem of there's elephants in the room. Like the associates are saying, there are only two partners. Does one of you have to die for me to get promoted? I don't wanna talk about that. That's an elephant in the room. That means I don't have all the trust I need to have a productive conversation about my career. So any anyway, point is i go in or an outsider goes in figures out what the big issues are and we tailor it to that team so yeah there's no cookie cutter approach you don't need the catalog of worldwide training models for your five-person firm but you need to take these principles figure out where the gaps are and adapt a session that gets this group talking i mean i i do run off sites for teams of five and they're really effective because everyone's in the room having honest conversations as opposed to partners thinking they, you know, oh, it's my job to know everything. I don't need this. Of course you need this. Everybody needs this. I've been training management for many years. I'm definitely not a perfect manager. And I can line up a lot of people who've reported to me who will agree that I'm a perfect (laughs) manager. So hopefully they understand my commitment is to always improving. So that's the minimum we need to give our our teams, that constant commitment to improvement.
0: So now that uh, we've convinced the the naysayers that... uh... That they agree that that training and uh, and these principles can be effective for their firms. Uh, where can people go out go to check out your book? And is there anywhere else that they should be following you? And should be is like uh, go do it.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, look, I mean, my book's on Amazon. I it's been doing well. It's been resonating with lawyers. I hope it, it resonates with your audience. Um, What I would encourage, though, is people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm the most. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I post on LinkedIn, and I've got my website, my consulting firm, which is called The Landing Group, so thelandinggroup.com. But just email me. I mean, if you ever have a question about this, email me. I love hearing from people who've read the book or not. Hey, Ben, I didn't have time to read the book, but I've got this burning question. I don't care. Let's talk about how to build better legal teams because it behooves the whole industry to do it. Our whole industry gets better when we focus on this. So Ben at the landing is my email address, or hit me up on LinkedIn, like I mentioned. I haven't yet branched out into TikTok and a million Snapchat and a million other things. Uh, but I like LinkedIn, it's more of a professional context for lawyers, so you can find me there as well. I agree. I'm I'm afraid of TikTok myself. Um but, but you've got a YouTube channel, so you're you're doing better than I am.
0: Yeah. Well we'll talk. We gotta get you on YouTube then. Uh <laughs> But uh, links to everything will be in the description for anybody watching this or for anybody listening to this, still linked in the description. So uh, Ben's contact information, information and website and, and LinkedIn will all be uh, there for you to access. Uh, ben, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I uh, want to give a special thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, and we will be back with another episode of Everything Except the Law soon. Uh, be sure to check out previous episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts spotify anchor and the answering legal youtube channel links to everything like i said uh covered in today's conversation can be found in the description of this episode and uh we'll see you next time everyone